Welcome to Prerequisites. I'm Justice Neeland. I'm professor and chair of the Department of English, and it's my real pleasure to be hosting season two of Prerequisites. I want to start by thanking Dr. Zach Kruse for all of his great work getting this podcast up and running during our first season. Uh, this season, season two, we're going to be focusing on the research of three faculty in the Department of English, all of whom have just published new books in the last year. So today, uh, I am delighted to have the chance to talk to my colleague and friend, Dr. Juliette Gazetta, about her work. Dr. Gazetta is an assistant professor in the Department of English, as well as Romance and Classical Studies at MSU. Within English, Juliette has taught across the breadth of our mission, including two gateway classes for the English major, uh, introduction to playwriting in our creative writing program, upper level classes in drama and women writers, and most recently a graduate seminar on solo performance, which is connected to the book project that we had a chance to talk about in this episode. Dr. Gazetta is a scholar of contemporary drama and performance studies with an interest in Italian theater, and her additional research interests include feminist theory, 20th and 21st century literary cultures, and workerism. In this conversation, Juliet and I had the chance to talk about her terrific first book titled The Theater of Narration, From the Peripheries of History to the Main Stages of Italy. This exciting book was published this, just this past fall with Northwestern University Press, and I'm happy to say the project has already been enthusiastically received. It was recently awarded honorable mention for uh, the Modern Language Association's Ido and Jean Scaglioni Award for Best Manuscript in Italian Literary Studies. So congratulations, Juliet, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Um, obviously, we're going to start by talking specifically about the Theater of Narration Project, and I'm interested in getting us going by, by sort of thinking about the specificity of this genre. Obviously, this is a wide-ranging interdisciplinary project that's, I think, really elegantly structured, but at its core, I think it's fair to say, is the study of a particular genre. And I thought it'd be helpful if you could just sort of talk us through um, the characteristics of the theater of narration as a genre, and perhaps what drew you to it as the center of a book length study. Yeah, okay, well, thank you. Thank you for taking the time. Um, I'm delighted to share this work. I'm delighted to share it because I love it. <laughs> Even after all these years of working on this project, which came out of you know, my doctoral dissertation, um, you know, I still uh, love this type of theater and I'm really excited to uh, go back to Italy and see more of it and see it as it develops. So, I mean, in terms of really um, being able to envision it, it's mostly a solo theater, very um, minimalist, kind of stripped down from all of the familiar spectacularity of theaters, the minimalist sets, lighting, that's um, often just a person on stage and that person is usually also the author. And sometimes they're even sitting in a chair or standing at a podium. Sometimes they have um, screen behind them on which they project images, but not always. And really they tell a story of a national event from their kind of local perspective. And usually they have some sort of um, stakes in it, right? Like, um, I, th I think of it sometimes personal stakes, right? Like, you know, I'm from New York, as you know. Um, and I think, you know, if I were to do a theater of narration piece, you know, from the creative side, you know, I might talk about 9-11, right, mm -hmm. as a New Yorker. And then, you know, once you start thinking about how you yourself have these personal stakes to a national event, you know, weird things start popping up and you start to see how your own perspective can tweak the history. Like um, in this example, 
you know, one odd thing is my mom's birthday was 9-11. <laughs> so if I were to tell this story, you know, I bring to it this very um, kind of strange and personal um, history kind of wrapped into this event that touched, you know, so many of us as Americans. So for the theater of narration in Italy, you have events like World War II, right? That every Italian has some sort of connection to either from their town or their own family. And, um, you know, there's, there's so much of that history to still digest. And so a narrator would work through some of that history from their, you know, own seat at the table, as it were. So it has this really interesting dynamic, this really kind of personalist political mm -hmm. framework to it. So, I mean, this, this is connected to something I, I want to get to next, which is um, the specific intervention of the project, because as you just laid it out, obviously at the, at the core is an attempt to interleave um, the sort of personal and the political or the local and, and the national uh, and, and history is at the center of the genre. And yet it sounds like um, in terms of the way the, the, your intervention is framed in the book, uh, scholars of the genre had, had perhaps not thought directly about the genre as a way of making or doing history. And I wondered if you could say a little bit about the sort of specificity of that intervention for you as a scholar, highlighting the kinds of history that theater of narration allows us to do. Sure. Yeah, I think, you know, for me, it's a very democratic theater. Um, and this, of course, you know, this kind of emerged, um, you know, more recently as I um, kind of went more deep into it, like theoretically, um, you know, and I think of like there's there was something that always was kind of Gramscian about it to me. And so when I think of Gramsci, you know, I think of this really magnanimous idea of, um, you know, everyone is already an intellectual, right? I mean, that was one of his big contributions in the prison notebooks that like, you know, everybody can make bread, even if it's not your profession, right? You might not be a professional bread maker, but you can make a nice loaf of bread, right? That was his analogy. Everybody's an intellectual, even if that's not your profession. And I've seen that, you know, just on the ground in Italy, meeting people in, you know, the most random places, um, you know, and having these beautiful conversations, even though, um, you know, like I'm thinking of one person in particular was a retired, like uh, factory worker at a tire factory, Pirelli um, tires, right? So, so I had this kind of big framework of um, really, I credit, you know, back to Gramsci and this idea, um, and so for me, my intervention, how I started to read this theater was that the narrators were saying, you know, history is for everybody. Like everybody has the stake in history, the big histories, you know, the big histories we always say are written by the victors, right? But um, in fact, you know, that doesn't have to be the case. Like you can write not just your own history, but the history that we share. So the more we talk about the, the big narratives, the shared narratives, but from our local um, personal perspectives, really the better we understand them, you know, for everyone, the more insights, the more dynamics we bring. So that's kind of that, I would say that's really the overall message that I wanted to bring out and that I find, you know, personally, again, just so, um, you know, democratic, magnanimous, um, inviting to this type of theater, because it's also kind of apolitical, right? Unlike Dario Fo, right. um, mentioned in that uh, MLA citation, you know, who's super political, and Franco Rame, you know, who's a member of the Communist Party, right, famously left to the communists, um, brought this brilliant political theater, you know, the theater of narration, you know, it's political um, in the sense that it um, comments and interacts on a uh, political past, and yet it doesn't take positions, you know, it presents it um, and it asks its audience to digest. So with that, I guess another part that really fascinated me was that even though it's the solo theater, I see it as really dialogic. I see it as very conversation oriented. It's sort of like a beginning of a conversation and then one hopes that um, that conversation continues, you know, in any, any, any type of way really. Yeah, and I wanna get back in our conversation to that. What I see is a kind of 
structural paradox of the genre that it is this mm -hmm. solo performance genre that is so deeply connected to stitching together the personal and the political or the, the local and, and the communal. And I also wanna ask about the, the sort of politics or apolitics of the genre, but I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about the sort of specific historical context in which the theater of narration emerges uh, in, in Italy. Yeah, so I see it as really connected to this infamous decade um, that's often referred to as the years of lead. So largely the 1970s, which, you know, people say like the long 1970s, so maybe nine. 1968 to 80, and maybe even before that, right? Maybe even like 66, when some of the very first student movements were starting to, um, when students were kind of learning they had some power actually against their institutions by taking certain stands against um, the way the institutions were being run. Um, and then they say, you know, ending in the eight in 1980 with this terrible um, bombing in the Bologna train station in which, you know, 80 people died. Um, so the 70s in Italy, the long 70s was kind of like um, a, a decade of 68, you know, of um, uh, various revolutions. And this years of lead moniker, you know, it makes sense. I mean, it was a, it was a decade of terror and, um, you know, there's no getting away from that. But it was also a decade of um, really prolific introspection and, um, and productivity in terms of intellect and art, right? The feminist movement comes to mind first. Um, and then absolutely rights, you know, for workers, for students. I mean, it was, um, you know, the violence is obviously, um, I mean, to say regrettable is a euphemism, right? It's terrible, is is wrenching. But the um, the conversation, you know, that happened between those violences in many ways was very productive. And so the theater of narration, um, I see it as beginning in that time because that's when this group up in the north called Laboratorio Teatro Settimo, or just Teatro Settimo for short, just outside of Turin, started working together. And it was kind of like a bunch of high school and college kids mm -hmm. getting together at the local library um, where there's lots of activity, probably bread making, <laughs> um, <laughs> and also theater making. And these um, you know, young students really started uh, looking through the books, doing research about their own surroundings and really telling local stories. Um, and slowly this group kind of came together. And so that's where you get Laura Corino, who's one of the protagonists. Gabriele Vacis is a hugely important director in Italy. Um, and then um, you know, some of the other main protagonists later worked with this group, Marco Paolini. He kind of put narrative theater on the national map with a big television production. Um, and so you know, it's deeply connected to the decade in part because it these people met then and started working then. Right, it's but a little also, bit of their intellectual formation in many ways. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and and again, like as youths, you know. Right. I mean, I love kind of talking about this theater with students too, because it's like, this is you. <laughs> um, this is you. So uh, yeah, so it's it's a part, uh, a product of the period in that sense, in like the most literal sense. But then also in terms of spirit, um, in that kind of critical sense, uh, in that in that way of like looking deeply, which is I think what you know sixty eight and so many of these revolutions are ultimately about. Is Absolutely, kind of and I, I really I mean rereading re this, I was struck again by just the sort of the the both the specificity of the genre within Italy of the nineteen sixties, but also the, the sort of clear connections between what we could call a kind of like global. 1968. You mentioned the Teatro Settimo, and so I, I, I want to ask you to maybe expand a little bit on the centrality of the figure of Corino in this study. So tell us a little bit about this artist, um, why her work and her company and her practice, I think it's fair to say, really became the kind of presiding figure of the study. Mm -hmm. And that will also, of course, mm -hmm. allow us to talk a little bit about your, your practice your methodological practice, your relationship to uh, a particular archive. Yeah, um, it's funny. I mean, Corino, you did, yeah, so this, I, I frame it a little bit in the book as my like um, 
Carlo Ginsburg moment, you know, when he realized his own subjectivity, because there's absolutely a healthy dose of that um, because of the friendship really that formed with Corino. And so, and again, just that way, you know, that random encounters can bring fortune, right? Good luck. And so it was like my first year in grad school when I started um, kind of looking into this theater and, and started just being interested in it. And I was um, presenting at an Italian studies conference at Yale. It was the end of the year, end of the spring. Um, and it was on Marco Paulini, who's definitely the most famous. And it just so happened I was in the last panel. Again, this is all just like luck, right? I was in the last panel. And the, it was actually mostly a conference about film. And originally I didn't get into the conference and people, the organizers wrote me back and said, you know, it's just too much theater organized and we're really focusing on film. And I said, I totally understand. <laughs> um, I, I had, I had, my abstract was something about, um, it actually maybe comes up at some point, um, it, on the work on uh, my the work I do on Paulini, but it's really about his comedy, and I was looking at his televised performance. So that was my angle, and I was like, "Well, it's televised, it's filmic." I'm sort of, you know, trying to to get in through that angle. But I said, you know, I totally get it. But then, oddly, um, another month or two later, maybe they had someone cancel, and they said, "No, if you're still interested, why don't you come and talk about your Paulini papers?" I said, "Okay." So I go to this conference. I'm in the last panel, and they had a big director uh, coming, Alessandro Delatri is his name. Um, they were showing some of his films and he was there. And he just showed up for the last panel because he had just arrived. So it was just pure luck that he was at the panel where I presented on Paulini. And then at the little uh, like hors d'oeuvres and, uh, you know, kind of post-conference pre-film viewing um, soiree, he came up to me and he said, oh, I, you know, I really liked your paper on Paulini. How is it that a young American woman knows Marco Paulini? You know, how did, how did it come to pass? And I said, oh, I'm really interested in the theoration. I started naming a few people and I said, um, and Laura Curino, I'm interested in knowing more about her work. And he said, oh, I just directed her in a play. Let oh. me give you her number. And he took out his cell phone. And he gave me her number. So I, I just kind of, and, you know, I just sort of had her number and I didn't really know what to do with it. And, um, you know, a month or so later, it was the summer and I was going to be in Italy and I was in Milan for a month and I looked her up and it happened that she was giving a uh, workshop in Milan oh, the, the week I was there. And so I was like, you know what, I'm just going to do it. <laughs> I'm going to just cold call this, you know, famous actor. <laughs> Um, but I, I started, I said, you know, it was an easy way in because I could say Alessandro Delatri who just directed you <laughs> um, and who's this known film director gave me your number. So I called her um, and I said that, you know, and she was totally warm and she said, yeah, come to the laboratorio, come to the workshop and, you know, let's, um, you're welcome to watch and um, let's go out for a drink after. And so we did. And then we ended up, um, I think I say this in the acknowledgement, you know, this is the first time we met we ended up, um, you know, spending four hours together, having drinks outside and talking. So that, you know, it was just a luck thing. And I said, I was interested in her work and I'm interested in archival materials. And that's really how it started. And so when I, um, she also put me in touch with the scholar in Bologna who really wrote like the first big book on this theater practice. So I called him up. I went over to Bologna. Then when I was in Rome, uh, just for like a quick day trip to meet him. He is he was the one that did some of the very first work. Gerardo Guccini is his name. We're hoping we'll write a postfazione. Uh, um, they do more of like a rather than a preface, a postface. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the translation would be um, in Italian. Afterward, so I'm hoping he'll write. Afterward, there we go. <laughs> um, I'm hoping he'll write the afterward uh, for my the translation of this book. Um, but you know, then they together became, I think, kind of instrumental when I applied for a Fulbright when I got back to the states. So mm -hmm. I applied for a Fulbright. They both wrote me letters, um, and then you know, again, I think at a certain point there's just luck, and so I got that Fulbright which gave me a year in Turin, um, basically in Laura's basement, going through boxes 
and taking pictures uh, with my dog, Stella, who you remember, um, Stella. And uh, that was how I spent many weeks of, you know, 2009, 2010, going through this personal archive. Um, And as a result, you know, it absolutely centered um, certainly Teatro Settimo, um, but also, you know, Corino, you know, I think she's already regarded as a main figure, but the issue of, um, you know, gender becomes a question, absolutely, and how to um, kind of bring that up and talk about that without offending everybody, <laughs> um, but also acknowledging their reality. Um, and Juliana Musso, another, um, you know, what do you call second generation, kind of more recent actor, um, who's, who's like the other kind of main protagonist, who's a woman, right? She, she and I have had more um, direct conversations, I guess, about being a woman in theater in Italy and what that means. Um, but Corino, Corino's approach is much more subtle. So um, her huge play is about the Olivetti family, famous mm-hmm. for their typewriters, as you well know, yes. and, um, and their design. Yes, and they worked with all the great designers. Yeah. And, and for being a kind of, well, actually I want to ask you about a, a model of a kind of uh, humane corporatism, but we'll talk totally. about Yeah. 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 I mean, the Olivetti, I mean, and that's the thing. It's like, you know, it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating um, family to write about. Um, and so, of course, unsurprisingly, you know, it captured Italy. It was televised nationally. She's performed it. I think around seven or 800 times at this point. Um, she's still, it's still in her repertory. She still performs it. Um, and it's the story of this family at the very beginning. I'm reading it right now, actually, with my students in Italian. Um, and she tells it from the perspective of the matriarchs. But, you know, the politics, the feminism, very, very subtle. Um, but one could say, um, or I will say, <laughs> that, um, yes, let, let us say it, is that, you know, what she's doing in that is really attributing that, you know, what you were just saying, that kind of humane capitalism, <laughs> you know, to these matriarchs, really, and to their perspective of, um, and really, uh, like, humane with the humanities as its base, right? Like this sort of deeply human perspective, culture, um, you know, many languages, right? Um, the the Olivetti's, you know, they all spoke four languages um, as did Camilo, right? The founders did his mother um, and this deep appreciation for the arts and literature. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a funny point in the play where he said he's interested in engineering and she's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, go into literature and art and politics, um, you know, but he brings all of that to science, right, to engineering, mm-hmm. as did Adriano, obviously, with the design. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to come back to that, but but I want to, if we could stick for a moment with Corino and, and the archive, um, and I'm wondering a couple things. One, you know, you mentioned hanging out with Stella in, in the basement. What was the kind of status of the archive? at that point, how well organized was it? To to what extent were you effectively assembling a sort of organizational structure for the archive because it had not been available to researchers? So that's one question, but then also kind of more broadly, I can see how, you know, for all of us who are, you know, interested in archival work, there's such a tremendous excitement when you get access to an archive that scholars perhaps have not had access to before. And obviously this is connected in this instance, to a, a friendship, a personal relationship that you've developed. But then there's also the kind of problem that that poses, right? Like, how do you, as a scholar, develop a sort of level of, of critical distance on this practice and on this, you know, because you're so proximate to the, to the kind of keeper of the culture hoard, the, keep, the keeper uh, of the archive. So two, I guess two questions there, the yeah. standard of the archive and then you know, that, navigating that dynamic. 
Well, this was like a typical Italian deal, right? <laughs> it's like, you can look through anything you want. I have nothing to hide, but you should, you know, why don't you organize it as you go along? <laughs> so <laughs> it was like a little bit for her, a little bit for me. I mean, I think eventually the archive should be properly organized. And, um, you know, I, 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 I believe it will end up in probably that local library, which is the library where so much began. Um, but it was... A, a big uh, like cellar in a basement about the size of my office just filled with boxes of old scripts, notes, diaries. Um, you know, she put it, she kept everything. Um, old flyers for their first shows, um, publicity materials. So it was actually incredibly rich. Um their very first like company statements, you know? So, I mean, it had all of these, uh, I mean, they explicitly said why they were doing what they were doing, what they wanted to do, what they hoped to accomplish, you know, all in uh, probably written on an Olivetti typewriter. <laughs> um, and um, what else in those materials? I had something in mind. Were, were there, I mean, were, were there, as you were working through it, was mm -hmm. Guarino um, highlighting aspects of it or, or saying, oh, well, you know, according to my recollection, you know, if you want to get a, a really good example of, you know, the sort of intellectual context for our articulation of our theories, take a look at this pamphlet or this particular moment or how much. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was more like, um, I would go to her and be like, can you explain this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't totally this? follow what you mean. And she'd be like, oh my goodness, look at that. <laughs> and so she would kind of like, um, you know, explain what I asked her to, um, or, you know, it's more, um, it, it, she wasn't directing what I was looking at, but if I if I wanted her to tell me more about what I found, but what I what I remembered what I was going to say was that um, one thing that was incredibly useful um, that I found was that in some of these early statements that they wrote, also you know part of the reason why they did that was um, to then apply for money from the town and the mm -hmm. state, the, the region. So it had a, it had a various purposes, um, but really concrete ones too. Also to say that, you know, this was a way for artists to live, right? I mean, there's, there was money for the arts, you know, and there still is, although, you know, in Italy, they always say like, ah, oh, Germany is where they really have money or France and Italy, they give terrible money. But of course, from the U.S. perspective, <laughs> um, they actually still get a lot of money. Um, but yeah, so one of one of the um, absolutely crucial things that I found um, at the was a kind of a bibliography in some of these old. Um, early theater company statements, and they were reading like all the theoretical texts that, um, you know, we still kind of teach like Foucault, absolutely Ginsburg, Cheese and the Worms, you know, so all of these big writers from that period, 70s, 80s, they were reading and they were also influenced by. So, you know, I mean, I think that tells us a lot, but one of the things is the, um, you know, the way in Italy, and I found this in other parts of the world where I've, you know, lived and studied theater like Moscow or England, um, you know, artists and intellectuals, right? I mean, even like your the London program, right? When you all go do film right. in Britain, I mean, you have like big um, directors and, um, you know, major thinkers come and talk to the students, right? That here I think would be very hard to get. Whereas in Italy, you know, in other parts of the world, um, artists and intellectuals, right? Critics aren't seen so as such like threatening presences, yeah. um, but also in their work. I mean, so, so these artists were reading these, um, really, you know, kind of heavy theory, and thinking about it and applying it in their own work, which I love. Yeah. Um, but to your question about subjectivity, you know, I still have my own insecurities about it, to be perfectly frank. Um, but I think, I mean, it gave me a special kind of viewpoint into the theater. And, you know, in some ways, I think I was looking to decenter some of the um, credit, which was so... Um, you know, driven to certain figures who I still certainly think are important and who are, you know, very much featured in the work, but to also, you know, um, 
think about how it was less of a, like an individual phenomenon and how this group activity actually, and I kind of like that tension too, right? It was this, these groups um, right. that were working that then gave way to this sort of singular form. So even some of, again, you know, Marco Paolini is sort of so famous um, because of this one show by Ant. Um, but, you know, he was also working in group theater and then he went to Teatro Settimo and was working with Corino. I mean, they all, you know, when I met him in Italy, it was because I was at a show that Bacis was doing and then uh, that Corino invited me to. And then she was like, you have to come out back. Paulini's here. I was like, oh, I just I have a ticket to his show in <laughs> like three days. You know, but I had never met him, but they were all just kind of having a little reunion because they still see each other's work. You know, Vachi still works with like the same um, designer, Lucio Diana, who did, who's working in Teatro Settimo with everybody. So it's all, you know, these worlds are all kind of connected, um, but I think back to this group theater. And so, you know, there's some out there a little bit in Italy about Teatro Settimo, but as I... As the material is actually objective. So even though it was from Corino's archive, seeing their company statements, you know, didn't have Corino written all over it. It had the the group right. authors. Right. Um, right. And so I thought, you know, this really needs to be at the center of the history. It's clear. Um, almost all of these roads lead back to Teatro Settimo. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, on the question of um, subjectivity and just sort of navigating proximity to the archive, you know, I, I think, especially in that in your third, the fourth chapter on community, where you're talking about uh, Teatro Settimo, that you do a, I think, really impressive job of um, both sort of acknowledging what is, um, uh, you know, enlightening about this sort of argument for Olivetti as a kind of, you know, humane capitalism and also you know t- taking seriously the critiques of, of Olivetti. I mean I think you say something like you know Corino is effectively complicit in a kind of hagiography of the Olivetti, uh, Olivetti corporation and I'm wondering you know it, it, is this um, how did Corino res- respond to that that level of critique? I, you know, um, I don't know. So <laughs> it's really funny. Um, I'm going to take this, this few steps back, but, um, you know, the, so I, like when I was trying to uh, sort of think about other theaters, this is in conversation with, I was thinking about theater of the absurd as just kind of this form of theater, theater of cruelty, sort of other, these big theaters. And there's this book by Martin Eslin on theater of the absurd, and it's kind of the big book. The book. And in, um, I don't know, his third edition or something in his new preface, he talks about how, you know, um, Ionesco was like really angry that he had a smaller chapter than Beckett and like (laughs) navigating those relationships, right? So Corino, so originally the book cover, um, I was trying to get a picture of Corino. There's actually, it's in the picture that I wanted is in there, um, might be in that fourth chapter. It's the picture of her on stage and then behind her is an archival image of a woman holding a caravan and, so we tried to, uh, you know, get that for the picture because I, I think that image, yeah, page one fifty six, if you have the book, yeah, okay. you know, I think that um, that that image is the theater of narration. I mean, that's the archival work that the narrators also do. Yeah. So she's yeah. telling the story of this woman, um, you know, who who's. Uh, it's based off of this um, book by an author called Nuto Ravelli who did oral histories. So he had interviewed her and then um, Corino gets the text from actually his oral history. Um, but so it's about this very specific region um, and this life. However, um, Saveria La Ruina, who's a very interesting actor from the Calabria region, um, and I talk about him in chapter three um, that I know at one point you and I were talking, thinking about talking about a little bit here, but, you know, thinking about language, he uses, you know, really fascinating, difficult dialect. I have no idea basically what he's saying when I go to his shows. Mm. <laughs> um, it's just that I'm familiar with the text and you can sort of follow, you lose yourself in this musicality. Um, but like, you know, I put I put the text, I put both the standard Italian and the dialect that he's using in there just so people can see it's totally different. 
in any event, he was, you know, he really took me to task about a critique um, that I made, um, you know, because he, he, I'm, you know, it's wonderful. He talks about women's issues in the South, right? That are huge. His play that I talk about is called Laborto, the abortion, right? So it's right out there. Um, and, um, you know, but I critiqued him a bit for not giving voice or really credit to any women. I mean, there's no mention of the many interviews that he did do. I think he does a beautiful job, you know, and I talk about it mostly in very laudatory terms, but I do say, you know, um, I think he undercuts himself and kind of ventriloquizing a voice rather than actually giving, creating a space for that voice or more authenticity. And he was furious with that saying, I'm the first critic and the only critic who have ever, you know, said that and many women and many critics have only praised him. This come out uh, one-on-one or in an email or how did this? And an, this is over email this fall when he got the book. Mm. <laughs> um, and we talked about it a little bit, you know, I said, I really value your perspective and I hope, you know, but I, I see it, you know, I was like, look, you know, I mean, I get largely fantastic teaching evaluations and then there's that one um, and right. that's the one that you think about. Sticks, and I said, look, you. I'm largely like, I'm really praising your work here. And, and just by the very fact that I included it is because I value it so highly. Exactly. Um, yeah. It's now but, in the record you know, in this new way. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And his work is not actually um, written about to the extent that the others are. So I was really happy to bring it into um, the study. But that doesn't mean it's, you know, um, 100% perfect in my viewer that I don't see room for uh, some sort of intervention. And I and I hope you take it forward. <laughs> for your, you know, and thank you for taking me exactly. so seriously. Exactly. So yeah, Corina less so, so far, except for the cover situation. Severo uh, Ruina, on the other hand, um, but you know, I, again, I think it's all kind of in um, good spirits. Um, you know, I, I think he'll allow me to go see his shows still, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, and and have a drink or something. One of the things I was struck by rereading some of the material was again, again, this kind of like re reflexive doubling between the practices of the artists that you're investigating and your own sort of practices as a scholar, specifically, you know, thinking about archives. I mean, obviously, you know, we've been talking about your relationship to this archive, but also thinking about the centrality of the, of the deployment of research and archives in this, you know, in, in the work of the narrators. And I wonder if you, for listeners, could, you know, give folks maybe an example or two of, of the way in which the, the theater of narration is is investigating specific archives and and sort of critiquing them or opening them up in different ways I'm, I'm thinking specifically about your your arguments about I mean there's moments in the book where you notice the way archives both you know preserve and and destroy um and mm. um, and specifically the kind of gendered nature of of what is kept and what is not kept uh, in the archive. So maybe just talk us through an example or two of that kind of practice, that sort of sensitivity to archival practice in the in the methodology of the narrators themselves rather than you as a scholar. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll, I'll answer you anecdotally, which is sort of its own performance, I suppose, since we're talking about narrations. <laughs> um, you know, well, there, there's, you know, some really excellent scholarship um, that's of course completely escaping me. Uh, it'll come to me. This is the part you can edit out. No, it'll come no to me. Diana Taylor, um, Diana Taylor and Rebecca Schneider, who I'm thinking of in particular, um, on their work on um, you know expanding the archive to beyond the document and kind of the body knowledge and everything in between. Um, and so thinking more critically about an archive. And um, I think I mentioned this maybe in a footnote. I, I had it maybe in uh, the main text at some point, but I think I took it out. I had a fascinating experience when I was interviewing Ascanio Celestini, um, which was uh, during uh, the spring, April or so of um, 2018. You know, and I had already given, you know, and Corino, obviously I had a friendship with at that point, and I'd given tons of interviews, you know, felt like tons at that point, you know, to many of the other 
our um, artists. And Celestini was kind of a big one because he was hard to get a hold of, frankly. He's another one of, he's maybe more of like a mega star in part because he's done a lot of work in film too. Um, anyway, so I sat down with Celestini. It was before his show. We're going to see a show. I met him at the theater. We walked over to a um, quote unquote bar in the Italian style, which is where you just get coffee mostly. And, um, you know, we got uh, some coffees before a show, sat outside. Um, and, and as we were talking, I had, you know, just some questions about kind of the origins of his practice. And he was answering me in these long answers. <laughs> I mean, going way back. Um, uh, and it was great. I mean, it was really interesting. And it was hilarious because we were a block or two from his theater. And so people were walking by going to see his show. And then they do this double take and be like, oh, I'm going to see Like, we're going to see your show. And he'd be like, oh, grazie. Like, see you, you know, see you in a little bit. And so the show, say, it started at eight and it was like seven. I think he was even a little late to meet me. Right. So it's kind of like, oh, great. This is going to be, you know, 10 minutes. But so it's, you know, 7.30, 7.45. And I was kind of like, you know, do you need to go? <laughs> um, do you need to go like warm up? Do you like, like your shows in 10 minutes, you know? <laughs> and I realized he was warming up. This was his warm up, you know, because it's a, it's a, it's a storytelling show essentially, yeah, right? That's so great. So, so I was, because like in the past seeing him, he seems to me the most unnatural in, in delivery, right? Like the, the least conversational, the most, he speaks very quickly, um, very deadpan, um, like not being a native speaker, I really have to concentrate to kind of catch every word. Um, whereas the others, you know, are, it feels more conversational, more in dialogue. And, and as I was sitting there and he was sort of doing what he does on stage, I was like, oh my gosh, this is your rehearsal. And, this, and then he even said at points, you know, part of my practice is I will just go into a room and start talking and I'll just talk for three hours and see where my thoughts take me and sort of do, you know, just follow the non sequiturs as they come and sort of do this train of thought and, um, you know, record it. And that's just part of his practice of narration and sort of finding material. And that's what he was doing with me. Um, and so it was this kind of amazing moment though, because, you know, I mean, he was his own archive in that moment, mm -hmm. right? His practice, his, his own performance, his technique. Um, but he also sort of let me see how, um, you know, this practice can be formed through like this, this sort of train of thought and through, um, you know, the, the archive is always with him, right? right. Like his archive, it, and, it, and it's almost as though it, you know, his kind of stacks of boxes, like that Corino had in her basement, you know, he just brings them like out of his subconscious, as it were, in the midst of kind of a 20 minute story. Yeah, it's just also such a, just a brilliant example of part of what it seems like the book is about, or this genre is about, which is the kind of porosity of the distinction between the space of performance and the so-called real, like those are always mm -hmm. getting sort of reflexively folded the one into the other. So the fact that you mm -hmm. find yourself, you know, on the street in in the real and yet in the midst of rehearsal for performance seems totally precisely to the point. Um, <laughs> that that reminds me to ask um, about um, and you started talking about this. You signaled it earlier in terms of the kinds of um, '70s work that um, Teatro Settimo. Uh, Corino, we're, we're reading, you mentioned Ginsburg, Carlo Ginsburg, but I wonder if you could just say a little bit, for those who maybe don't know as much about the, the idea of so-called microhistory, the sort of mm. intersection between microhistorical practices and, and this genre, and also another term, an associated um, discipline, I suppose, um, is, is the discipline of, of ethnography and more specifically autoethnography. So if you could just say a little mm. bit about this genre's relationship with those two things, microhistory and ethnography. Yeah, I mean, the, so this, um, you, Ginsburg, Ginsburg's um, sort of most famous contribution is Cheese and the Worms, as you know, and the Teatro Settimo artists were reading it and were citing him. Um, and even before that, um, yeah, what is that quote? I have it in the book somewhere. Um, 
it's about um, sort of clues and um, and the kind of lacunae and how history is sort of about filling in these holes, but the archives and our knowledge is only, um, you know, we find these clues and it's up to us to fill in the rest in some ways, right? It's sort of in conversation, I think these other um, historians who work, you know, like, um, Lord, what's his name? White, first name. Hayden White. Hayden, thank you. Um, you know, who really kind of take more seriously fiction and imagination and how those fill in at the the real, you know, historical, um, you know, past memory, legacy. Um, so yeah, so the micro history, uh, you know, also La Durie, I mean, also in conversation with French historians, uh, just maybe preceding some of his work. Yeah, I mean, really is looking, is taking, um, you know, I mean, very much what the theater of narration does, actually, mm -hmm. these kind of smaller examples, sort of localized individual stories, and um, reading them in actually more macro ways, reading them to understand, um, you know, I, I see it then connecting kind of to the work of the Anal School, um, connecting back to, you know, much larger vision and understanding. So it's kind of about that dance in between, which, yeah, absolutely, I see as part of the performance happening on stage. Mm -hmm. um, and then what was part two of that question? Oh, just the, the sort of ethnographic dimension, oh, yeah. kind of autoethnographic dimension of, of this practice of narration. Yeah, I mean, and, and I guess by that, I, the auto, yeah, so the ethnography, I mean, you know, again, going back to that connection between the intellectual and the artist, I mean, these, you know, works, um, the theater of narration, they're all deeply researched. So, um, you know, in the libraries, oral histories, um, you know, newspapers, whatever, I mean, any way that we research, right, I mean, very, very close to um, our own, you know, kind of primary source research. Um, and um, and then also, you know, ethnographic when possible, right? Depending upon the subject. And so, um, and I think Celestini uh, in particular refers to his work as kind of an ethnography. Um, and so the way that they then incorporate their own stories, which varies, I mean, some like the, the narrator has a lot of themselves and others, you know, you have to kind of make more associations, um, you know, so yeah, I was interested in playing with that role too, the way that their practice and their performance also imitated uh, a research methodology. Yeah, we, I, I wanted to talk if we could a bit specifically about, um, we've touched on it a little bit through Olivetti, but the the chap the fourth chapter on community um, specifically and and Teatro Setimo's emphasis on location and the creation of community um, that comes I guess as you frame it via um, specific physical and civic spaces their their mobilization of specific civic and physical spaces and also the way in the in the context of the genre these spaces themselves become kinds of characters. Um, I was really interested in, in, I mean, I learned a lot in this chapter about the, the sort of concrete methodologies for engaging members of a space in a kind of imaginative practice of how to turn the city into a stage. And I wondered if you could sort of talk a little bit about that in the context of this, um, what I understand to be a kind of entrepreneurial group, Pepe, that was connected to Teatro City. Oh, yeah. Um, and 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 their you know that project and the and the sort of the long live the the piazza uh, project. Yeah, and you know, still today, I mean, there are so many great festivals that are deeply connected to the land on which they're taking place, um, and they're bridging these conversations. So. Pepe, uh, Viva la Piazza, all those initiatives in the early 80s in particular, um, you know, and, and actually I'll say Corino filled in a lot of this for me. Um, and so in some ways via her channeling Corino, you know, she talks about Settimo, and this is all in one of her, her really her first narrative theater play, one of the first in 1987 called Passione, you know, kind of what a dreary dump Settimo uh, Torinese was, right? So Settimo Torinese, and I mentioned this, you know, it's sort of common in Italy, there are some cities that don't, that are named like for their distance from the major city, like there's Settimo Firenze or something, but like for Florence, right? Mm -hmm. But for Turin, right, there's Settimo Torinese, which is just seven kilometers 
from Turin. So it's like a city without a name, right? Um, Maybe we could say that for East Lansing. I don't know. But, um, <laughs> there are parallels, believe me, I have thought of. Um, you know, and she described it growing up there, having moved from Turin, because that's where a Fiat opened up a lot of factories. Her dad worked for Fiat. Her mom was a seamstress, Corina. So the family moved there for her dad. And um, the city was being built. And they had school um, you know, it would hide in like someone's house for a while because the school wasn't finished and the teacher's house, and they'd have to close the windows because it the construction was so noisy or the stench from the tire factory would seep in. Um, and that the city was not a city for humans. It was a city for factories and a city really for cars. And there's this one archival image I have in that chapter of um, just like a parking lot, <laughs> right? And it's like a city for parking lots and cars, right? And to be honest, I think about this sometimes crossing Grand River, um, you know, and I'm like, where's the piazza here? <laughs> there are parking lots. This is like a city for cars. What about the city for people, right? Exactly. The I mean, where is inhumane on some basic level. Totally. I mean, it's it gets very connected to environment. And, um, you know, I mean, today it's it's so relevant for so many of those conversations. And so these artists really wanted to, you know, again, you know, I'm deeply I'm biased here as deeply a humanist, as I know you are, too, but wanting to put the humans back in the center of their towns. And so these artists wanted to change the um, you know piazzas and the markets from places of cars to places for people and art making and food and um, and conversation. And so that's what all these festivals were about. We're about centering people and their stories and the festivals. Um, you know, most of the shows. Today, I mean, I've seen so many of these shows for free um, in festivals on the like in the middle of the Alps, in abandoned train stations, um, in squares of small towns that were very hard for me to get to, not having a car. <laughs> um, you know, so this is not a theater for um, the main, you know, for only the main stages of Italy, right? This is a theater for everybody. Um, including those that can go to the Piccolo in Milan, right? The Broadway kind of shows. And for those, um, you know, in uh, little mountain villages um, to also center their land and their ter territory and sort of bring art and people there. Thanks again all for your tuning into another episode of Prerequisites, your guide to the thriving research culture of the Department of English at MSU. We look forward to bringing you another episode very soon. A special note of thanks to Zach Cruzy and Daniel Trego for their work in the production of the Prerequisites podcast. Be well. <laughs> <laughs>